ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Selena Green with you for this Wednesday edition of the Country Hour. Now, are you an Optus customer today? Keen to know what kind of impact this long and widespread outage is having on you, whether it's at home or at work? Has it messed up your plans for today? Has it put things, well, brown things to a bit of a halt? If you can, provided that you have a way to do it, let me know on my talkback number, which is 1300 222 or... Uh, if you've got some way of texting in, if you do have some sort of service, 0467 922 891. Well, coming up shortly, a look at the fallout of industrial action in abattoirs. And it turns out the Chinese can't get enough of our almonds. Francis Lewison and the team at DFAT were able to negotiate a free trade agreement. We've gone from exporting about 300 tonnes to China to last year 50,000 tonnes. So that's a phenomenal amount of growth. It is huge growth and you'll hear more about that shortly. But first today, two Australian grain farmers are preparing to send their second shipment of wheat to Oman, direct from the paddock to a Middle East flour miller. Barry Large and Andrew Weedman founded LW Investments several years ago with the view to market and export their own grain. After successfully sending a shipment from Victoria earlier this year, the pair are gathering another 35,000 tonnes of wheat. WA-based grower Barry Large says consumers in Oman want to build relationships with Australian farmers. We'll put together another shipment of about 35,000 tonne. We're a good way through getting our cargo at the moment for this shipment and um, then we'll, we'll, we'll load it like we did last time and guys will run to port and, and we'll get it on the water. So you have that network established where the farmer delivers to the port and it's what straight onto the boat? Absolutely. And that's where the saving is and we've developed that. And we've also, um, because Andrew and I being the sort of people we are, our names mean a lot to us. And we've, we had to make sure that we had things in place that people were paid, and including carriers. And we paid everyone in five to seven days and, and we're very proud of that. This shipment that you're preparing for, when will it set sail? Uh, it will be early in the new year and we've bought about maybe 40% so far. We're just waiting as the season goes on to make sure that we um, see what Andrew's production is, of course, which is number one, and the guys that were behind us last year. But it is exciting and we've been able to take it from paddock to them and, and traceability and everything is paramount. We're listening to what they want, trying to um, tailor the, the needs to them and they have a very good plant in a musket Oman. So we're really trying to give them what they want. So is there that interest in that market that you've you found in Oman where those consumers want to know more about the Australian farmer who produced this grain that they're buying? Do they, are they interested in fostering that connection? Very much so. And I, and I think that's the catalyst of the whole show, is that they're very keen to start relationships with growers. And, and we're talking intergenerational too, because these people have been around a long time. Can that market get any bigger than one shipment per oh, year, yeah. do you think? 
Absolutely. Look, it's been baby steps and we've just been going along quietly, trying to understand the concept from out of the paddock down to Geelong, onto the boat and dealing with things like currency and boats and things that can go wrong. It's a market that we've been able to um, establish a great relationship with and we just go along quietly and try and supply them what they need and listen to what they've got to tell us what would help make them get a better outturn in their flour mill. So how big could it get? I don't think it's going to be a million tonne market or anything like that. But I know one thing that I look forward to the day that we are able to put some wheat out of Western Australia to there and they have had wheat from Western Australia in the past. I do look forward to that. I think any market that you can bring into your state or your jurisdiction has got to be good for growers. It's just opportunities present. You are getting ready to send this shipment to Oman. Does the conflict that we're seeing in Gaza factor into your mind around when you're looking at the logistics going into these countries? Absolutely. It's been front and centre to our mind how this affects what goes on in that and we're we're seeking advice with the shipping companies. And and you know what? It's a great process and, and the people have been very good along the journey. Andrew and I followed our first shipment over there. We spent a lot of time understanding i do have a new definition of food security in my mind and when you see how dry it is and that it just doesn't rain like we're we're in a drought at the moment or maybe that's a bit harsh word to use but i think it's pretty close to it we're in a very low rainfall year over there these guys they don't get any rain and they really depend on buying in their food and and it really made me think very hard about it as Western Australian grain grower and wheat exporter Barry Large speaking there to Joe Pendergrast. Ten minutes past 12. The Australian Meat Industry Council says strike action from some workers will cause disruptions to processing that could take days to resolve. Government on plant vets and meat inspectors that are community and public sector union members will strike for one hour at the end of their shift today and again on Friday. It's all part of rolling action the CPSU is taking after members rejected the federal government's last offer of an 11.2% increase over three years. AMIC CEO Patrick Hutchison says the meat processing sector is collateral damage in these negotiations. As he tells Linda, Lydia Burton, the impact of the shutdown could be wide felt. Meat cannot be inspected on behalf of our international markets as per our requirements to export to them. And so we will either have to put that product onto the domestic market, which is already burgeoning under the weight of a huge livestock increase in um, supply, or we'll have to close for an hour, or we'll have to go and then eat into overtime, which is quite incredulous considering the fact that those people who will then be taking that strike action will then be uh, having to work overtime where they get paid more. So inevitably, they just almost get paid twice, which has got to be exceptionally galling to our members. Does a one-hour stop have that much of an impact, though? Isn't that like an extended lunch break? Uh, Far from it. You know, we're very upset of being used as a bargaining chip with the federal government by the CPSU, never spoke to us, never engaged with the industry that they're going to impact, never spoke to the department themselves. And frankly, you know, this is unions gone wild uh, as, as in, within this process. So, you know, stopping for an hour on a factory where, you know, if you're a lamb processor of a certain magnitude, you could be processing 10 a minute. 
all of a sudden, you know, that's a number of lambs that you then can't process within that hour, especially if you're bulk export. We've got 86 registered export establishments in this country. They uh, run 92 chains, uh, utilising 94 shifts. So there is a lot at stake here. And when you are processing, boning, packaging, and then loading out, uh, product in that way, these are highly attuned manufacturers. So turning a factory off for an hour is akin to basically turning it off for six hours, trying to get everything back to um, back to functionality again. And so does the whole plant have to stop with those two positions out? So we're talking about meat inspectors and on-plant vets, or can the processing continue without them on site, or does everything it- come to a stop without those two roles? Look, the processing can continue if it's going onto the domestic market or can be diverted to the domestic market. But these are high, highly functioning factories that have multitudes of brands. They are processing a multitude of different types of livestock uh, at any one day or at any one time, going underpinned by a multitude of brands and specifications, going to a multitude of markets. So it's not as simplistic as just saying, oh, well, they're not here, so we can just keep processing and they can come back. So if you are heavily slated towards uh, export markets, then them not being there means you can't process. Did we get a call or any any information in regards to their strike? No, we didn't. So that's the, the sheer lack of respect that this union has shown our industry. Uh, and at a time when farmers are struggling and trying to get livestock off farms and everything else, this has a knock-on effect that can last not just for hours, but for days, trying to get back into uh, a rhythm. So do you think producers will feel the effect of it through prices and reduced capacity? I think what producers will find is that it's not necessarily about a reduction in price. What it is, is producers may be sending livestock in on those days or days around that, and they will have to wait another week, another 10 days potentially, while in, you know, while companies then reset themselves. So is there Um, an animal welfare risk in, in terms of that? Absolutely. So, and that's what I'm saying is that this uh, this union has been exceptionally reckless in their process. Where collateral damage, they should be taking it in house and managing it there accordingly. That's what I wanted to ask: was uh, when uh, industries are fighting for better pay or better conditions, a strike is the normal action. Was there another way for them to achieve this? Absolutely, by doing it in-house. Don't forget, they're impacting a third party here. We are not party to these negotiations. Anyone who wants to strike within the processing sector over an EBA or whatever else is doing that employee to employer. We don't employ these people, but they have to operate within our facilities in order to ensure that we meet the requirements of our export markets. Patrick Hutchinson there, CEO of the Australian Meat Industry Council, speaking with Lydia Burton. The Department of Employment and Workplace Relations and the Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries have been contacted for comment but did not provide one. But in a statement, CPSU National Secretary Melissa Donnelly said union members would continue to apply pressure to the federal government until a revised pay offer was on the table. It's now going on 16 minutes past 12. You're with Selena Green on this Wednesday. Exports, gosh, we talk about them a lot, but they are a key part of so many ag businesses now. And they're at the centre of discussions between Prime Minister Anthony Albanese 
and those he's having in the, at the moment in China. And while the China market has proved extremely difficult for the wine industry in recent years due to heavy tariffs, uh, tariffs, other industries have experienced a boom, and one of those is the almond industry. Stephanie Nitschke is speaking with the Almond Board of Australia Chief Executive Tim Jackson. He explained the change in exports to China over the past five years. Francis Lewison and the team at DFAT were able to negotiate a free trade agreement. We've gone from exporting about 300 tonnes to China to last year 50,000 tonnes. So that's a phenomenal amount of growth. Golly, that's incredible. And so volumes have grown exponentially. What, what, is, why, what is, has this strength in partnership also done for growers? Has it given them that confidence to expand or just confidence in being a grower? There's so much uncertainty in that sort of line of work. Yeah, well, it's sort of gone hand in hand for sure. We've, we've, since 2016, our plantings have doubled. We've gone from 30,000 hectares across the country to 60,000. So yeah, it, it has been a, a certainly a, a factor in everyone's decision is the, the demand in China for Australian almonds with zero tariff has been a, an absolute boon for us. Right, OK. And how are the prices looking? Prices at the moment are very flat. They're probably at 10 to 12-year lows. So the tariff advantage into China means that it's a lot lower than the price that the Californians can land their almonds. So there's a little bit of a premium to be had there. So that's one of the reasons why it's been so important for growers is uh, pushing uh, volume into China has allowed them to, uh, to, to get a premium price for their product. Okay. And so what are the other important export markets for, for almonds? In the inshell market, 90% of those go into China and India. So the fact that uh, the government has, has backed up their free trade agreement with China with a with another uh, bilateral agreement with India, we now have a 50% uh, reduction in our tariffs into India. So we've seen it this year for the first year, so we've seen our exports increase by more than 100% into that market. And, and the Prime Minister has been in China this week uh, talking about lots of things, but of course trade is a part of this. So what could this visit mean to industries like yours? Well, from, from our point of view, we realise and have reap the benefits of having that free trade agreement. So we're, we're part of a broader cohort of horticulture and agricultural producers who understand, you know, the importance of China to our exports. So we would certainly be supporting uh, any moves to reduce tariffs, especially uh, wine, given, you know, 40% of the wine grapes are produced in the Riverland. It's had a massive impact on, on local growers. So we certainly would support anything that uh, we're living and breathing example of what a free trade agreement can do for a, a farm gate price. Yeah, and how important will China continue to be um, into the future for the industry, but also some of these other export partners like India? Yeah, well, like a lot of industries, we certainly don't want to be too reliant on China. We, we make sure that we diversify. Um, you don't want to be have all your eggs in one basket, Steph. It, it, if, uh, if anything we've learned out of the, the recent trade dispute, with some of the other uh, industries uh, where you know they've, they've had to go and start from scratch diversifying their market spread. Our industry's been very conscious of that over a number of years and still ship to more than 40 countries um, every year. And so just going back to those, those figures you mentioned earlier, so the volumes, you, it was 300 tonnes, now 50,000 tonnes to China. Is that yep. what you said? Yeah. Yeah, correct. Wow. So, so we're down a little bit this year, but that's largely due to the fact that you know, our crop is down 34% after a ter- terrible pollination in 2022. We expect our crop to bounce back significantly. So I-, I would suggest that we would see another bounce back in China and certainly India with um, volumes. Our growers are 
although the prices are, are still relatively low, the exchange rate is working in our favour at 65 cents at the moment. And uh, with extra volume, that might help offset uh, the lower prices. As the Almond Board of Australia Chief Executive Tim Jackson, and he was speaking there to Stephanie Nitschke. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. I quite believe another Wednesday has rolled around, so let's head to the markets. Now John Traeger has the Dublin sheep and cattle sale results. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Numbers reduced as agents offered 4,000 lambs and 500 sheep, one of the smallest offerings this selling season. Quality was again extremely mixed, however more of the young lambs were fresher in condition and sold to a stronger trend, with the best of these selling 4 to $5 in advance of the previous week's sale. Older lambs and inferior grades were again heavily discounted. Sheep quality was again good with prices unchanged. Trade and processor buyers provided good competition along with restockers being more active. Extremely light young lambs sold from 16 to 57 as lightweights ranged from 44 to 65. Light trade weights sold from 55 to 80 as trade weights ranged from 65 to 88 with heavy lambs selling from 65 to 105 and extreme heavyweights 110 to 135. Light older lambs sold from 40 to 75, as medium weights made 40 to 105, and heavyweights 90 to 110, with the few extreme heavyweights selling from 135 to $140 per head. Hoggett sold from 26 to 44, as a few young merino ewes managed 26 to $44 per head. Medium weight ewe mutton sold from 12 to 44, with heavyweights selling from 12 to 30. A small number of weathers sold from $22 to $30 per head. Ram lambs sold from $27 to $50, with mature rams selling from $1 to $32 per head. Meanwhile, in the cattle market, quality was again extremely mixed, as agents offered 80 live weight and open oxen cattle, with the usual buyers and attenders and operating. Pastoral yearling steers sold from $200 to $203, cents, with local calves selling from $158. 204 cents. Medium yearling heifers sold, sold to 212 cents, with cows to 130 cents. Yearling bulls ranged from 140 to 180 cents, and grown bulls sold from 100 to 105 cents. This is John Traeger at the South Australian Livestock Exchange for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. Thanks for that, John. And now off to Peter Kerr because he's got the latest from the Mount Gambier sale. Good afternoon, Peter. Good afternoon, Selena. This is the Mount Gambier Cattle Report for the 8th of November. Numbers listed this week as AC shared 1,568 head of live weight and open auction cattle. These sold to a large field of trade and processor buyers along with feeder and restocker support. Quality was generally good with weight and condition on offer in most pens. However, the market sold at cheaper rates this week. Feelers lost 20 to 30 cents as steers to the trade made from 175 to 235 cents with similar heifers returning from 140 to 222 cents a kilogram. Feeders operated from 165 to 196 cents on steers and on heifers to 195, as restockers sought both sexes from 130 to 186 cents a kilogram. Yielding steers to the trade made from 180 to 210 cents as feeders purchased from 182 to 212, and restockers from 171 to 196. Yielding heifers to the trade range from 184 to 220 cents with feeder activity from 182 to 195 and restockers from 164 to 189 cents a kilogram. Ground season bullocks returned from 147 to 192 cents to the trade with a fall of 10 cents with feeders active from 200 to 210. 
Crow and Heifer saw trade support from 182 to 194 cents. Feeders operated to 187 as manufacturing steers sold from 140 to 185 cents a kilogram. The best of the heavy cows range firm in price. They made from 165 to 187 cents. But lighter types make it from 100 to 167 as bulls range from 141 to 202 cents a kilogram. This has been Peter Kerr for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks, Peter. Peter Kerr with that report. Let's off, head off now for the weather report. And for that today, we're joined by Simon Timkey. Hello, Simon. G'day, Selena. Uh, we're already in the middle of the week. What is the story across the state? Yeah, look, uh, not much uh, action in the south of the state, but with broad um, low pressure across the north of the state, expecting to see a, a little bit of an increase in shower and thunderstorm activity during the afternoon. Um, we've had a... a, a a little bit of thunderstorm activity out over the West Coast District earlier this morning, pretty isolated, uh, and and had a couple of uh, storms just recently uh, uh, around the Tarkula sort of area. But they're, they're very isolated, uh, and I expect as we get into the, the heat of the afternoon, we'll probably see a little bit more cloud develop and some isolated showers and thunderstorms. Like yesterday, though, not too much rainfall getting on the ground with it. Uh, and those that, that activity this afternoon probably restricted to the pastoral districts, the Flinders district, possibly the, the West Coast district and maybe inland parts of Air Peninsula, but, but generally speaking fairly isolated, not much getting on the ground. Pretty hot in parts of the state, particularly the, the north today. Uh, temperatures already up into the, the high 30s in some places. So uh, the, the hot weather continues over, over the north of the state and will continue into the later part of the week. We'll actually see temperatures rise a little bit yet uh, and those very hot conditions extend uh, a little bit further southwards on Thursday, quite a bit further southwards on uh, on Friday. Friday looks to be the, the hottest day of the week in general across the state. Most districts are likely to see uh, hot to very hot conditions uh, and with those uh, those hot conditions we will see some elevated fire dangers on, uh, on Friday as well. Uh, but for Thursday, I think we'll see the, the uh, isolated shower and thunderstorm activity contract a little bit northwards and northeastwards. So for, for Thursday, uh, it, it will mostly be restricted to the northeast pastoral district and the far north of the northwest pastoral district. Uh, and again, like today, most of the activity during the afternoon and early evening. Tomorrow morning, like this morning, might be a little bit of patchy fog or, or low cloud about the southeast and Murraylands districts and the southeastern slopes of the uh, of the Mount Lofty Ranges. Uh, and then on Friday, as I mentioned, very hot conditions over most districts, chance of a shower or thunderstorm in the far north of the northeast pastoral district. Uh, and at this stage, we're, we're looking at extreme fire danger about uh, parts of Air Peninsula, the Flinders and Mid-North districts, but obviously we'll be... Uh, keeping a close eye on that day and uh, watch out for, for updates each afternoon uh, uh, leading up to Friday. Uh, over the weekend, uh, we'll gradually see uh, a change that moves over the south and the west of the state late Friday and early Saturday. That change gradually moving over inland parts uh, during, during the weekend. Um, so for Saturday, generally isolated showers and thunderstorms about the pastoral and Flinders districts. Still hot to very hot in the far northeast, but becoming a bit milder elsewhere as that change moves across. 
uh, and a similar sort of story for Sunday. The, the very hot conditions contracting right up into the very far northeast corner and generally milder conditions elsewhere. Still a chance of a, of a shower or thunderstorm on Sunday about the pastoral and Flinders districts. Then early next week, we start to see a bit of moisture push into the western part of the state. I think we'll see uh, some showers in the west on, uh, on Monday. Uh, and those showers contracting over over southern parts. Probably not too much about the southeast districts, but we will see a bit of shower activity in the west on Monday, the west and south on Tuesday. The odd rumble of thunder around still. As far as rainfall totals go, out to the end of that four-day period ending Sunday, generally not much, uh, less than two millimetres for anywhere that does pick up a shower or thunderstorm. Maybe the odd spot picking up a, a little bit more with a with a more significant thunderstorm, two to fifteen millimetres possible, but very isolated falls. But it does look like a, a little bit of potential early next week as we some see some of that moisture push down from the northwest. So if you are after a bit of rain, uh, keep an eye out for mm. for early to mid next week, Selena. Yeah, but we get through some hot stuff in the meantime. Certainly by the well, we sure do. Yeah, thanks, Simon. Simon Timkey there from the Weather Bureau. Looking at the western inland of New South Wales. For tomorrow, both the upper and lower western districts, partly cloudy days. For the upper western district, there's a medium chance of showers in the southeast, a slight chance elsewhere, chance of a thunderstorm in the afternoon and evening. Overnight temperatures between 17 22, daytime temps between 33 and 38. For the lower western district, a high chance of showers in the far east, slight chance elsewhere, and also the chance of a thunderstorm, with overnight temperatures getting down to around 16, daytime temperatures in the low to mid 30s. It's coming on half past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Hi there. Another warm to hot day across South Australia as we hurtle towards summer. Things are going to heat up even further as we get to the later parts of the week. It does mean harvest for certain cra- uh, crops is cracking on. That includes capers. Are you a fan of capers? A little, but they pack a salty little punch. And you'll learn more about the local caper industry here in South Australia. Just how in demand they are very shortly. And are you someone who likes to purchase plants and seeds online? Have you ever wondered if it was actually legal to buy some species and bring them into South Australia? Would you know? More on that. There are a couple of plants in South Australia which are invasive and they're declared weeds. So they're plants that you can't buy or sell online or even offline in South Australia. You'll learn a little bit more about that to come. But first, here's Matt Coleman with news. Hi, Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, Optus has been unable to identify the cause of an outage which is affecting millions of its mobile phone and internet customers, but says there's no indication it's a cyber attack. The outage has affected hundreds of thousands of businesses who've been unable to take electronic payments, and some government services, public health systems and public transport systems have also reported problems. South Australia's Education Department says Year 12 students will not be affected by tomorrow's teacher strike action. Teachers from more than 170 schools will strike for the second time in about two months, with the Australian Education Union rejecting a recent offer from the state government. The department's chief executive, Martin Westwell, says Year 12 students will sit their exams as planned. 
and South Australian health authorities say that gastro cases are increasing across the state, but the real number is not known. More than 1,000 cases of rotavirus, the most common cause of gastroenteritis, have been confirmed through a testing of stool samples, but the number could be much higher. Cases have been reported across daycare and residential aged care settings. More news at one o'clock. Thanks, Matt. Matt Coleman there with those headlines. Now, do you enjoy capers? Well, harvest of caper buds is underway in South Australia, but most of this niche food is actually destined for plates in some of Australia's most high-end restaurants. And demand for the local product is skyrocketing. Heidi and Dave Setchell from the Riverland have been growing capers alongside their jujubes and dates for almost a decade. Eliza Berlage visited their farm to learn about the hard work that's involved in harvesting these tiny green fruits. Yeah, we use pretty high-tech equipment out here. Um, yeah, I've got some industrial concreters, knee pads. They're a caper picker's best friend. So the knee pads are pretty essential. How long have you been picking this morning? Oh, about two hours. And how many do you think you pick in two hours? On a good day, I can get close to about half a kilo um, in an hour. But, yeah, it averages just depending on, you know, what's on the plant ready to pick, um, you know, probably only about 350 grams or so. So, yeah, you're not talking big numbers. And Dave was saying he reckons you're the better picker because you're ambidextrous. What's the sort of secrets to picking capers? How do you, yeah, what's the best way to pluck them? Oh, it's just, yeah, being able to use, like, both hands. Um, Sometimes they're a bit, like, sticky on the plants, you know, so sometimes you have to hold the branch and pull off one at a time, which is... Yeah, really slow. But if you can sort of hold do, two buds at a time and pick them like with both hands, it's quicker. And you look like you're doing a bit of a twist there as you pick them off. Yeah, it's sort of a little bit. I mean, you just—it's hard to explain like how it works. But yeah, you sort of just pick them right at the base of the um, little stem and just give them a little light snap. Some are easier to pick than others, like there's actually quite a bit of variation in the bushes that we have here. Um, uh, These ones in this top row are especially bred caper plant called Eurekas, and they're always really nice to pick. So we tend to focus on these upper rows more than the lower ones. Yeah, they look a lot bigger than, I know in the supermarkets you can basically only get ones from from overseas, but they look a bit bigger than that, don't they? Oh, they just, you grade them in different sizes. Um, Dave and myself tend to just pick, try and pick the buds that are around the five to eight millimetre diameter. There's a whole grading system of, you know, sized capers right up into these big ones but we yeah we don't really have a market for for those or we've never really like explored markets for them so we've just gone for the the mainstream size that you know chefs and um, people tend to to like to use if you go for a real little baby capers um, they're very popular with chefs as well but they're under five mil in size and take an extremely long time to pick a kilo of those. Black Sheep Produce co-owner Heidi Setchell speaking with Eliza Berlage. In the southeast of South Australia, Liz Crowley from Ananda Organic made the switch from garlic to capers six years ago. Liz explains how she found her initial customers and why she never needs to advertise her capers. Well, initially I was not stalked, but I guess <laughs> you could say that. But I used to, to I used to watch what was going online and and see what restaurants were out there. I mean, capers aren't 
a cheap crop. Uh, and they are cheap to buy imported, but the way we do them, it takes four hours to pick a kilo. So they're not cheap, but they're totally worth it. So I, I did. I, I found. I did see someone do a post on Instagram one day about a chef in Sydney, and all he focused on was fish. Now capers and seafood are a match made in heaven. So I thought I would t- reach out towards him and ask him if he would like me to send him a sample, and he said definitely. So I sent my sample off to him, and he was on the phone within a week, telling me that they're the best thing he's ever tried, and how could he get his hands on them. So basically, yeah, that was one of my very first customers. Once he was on board, and he's a very popular chef, he's just been named Australian Chef of the Year. Once he was on board and started posting some of my capers on his meals, I didn't have to reach out to any other customers. I was very lucky to, to nail the good one in, on the head first top. <laughs> so yeah, and then from now on, I've got a list, basically a list that I've got some chefs on my waiting list to be able to get on board. And we're hoping this year that we'll be able to supply a lot more people now that we've got a lot more bushes in. And we never knew that it would take off like it has, to be honest. So you just thought it might be a bit of a way to make a little bit of money and just a small focus, and that's turned into something much more than that. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is our semi-retirement plan. <laughs> so, so now it looks like we won't be going into semi-retirement anytime soon, but um, at least if we can build it up to a lot more bushes and at the end of the day one day when we do want to retire and sell up then we'll have a a a pretty good established business with a good clientele it's a lovely area we're in here 10 minutes out of Narracourt. when you're spending those hours and hours harvesting do you ever think about those high-end restaurants in places like sydney and melbourne where the capers end up and and what's happening to them yes i always think that we're the producer and the chefs are the creators and i love seeing what they do with our capers they post a lot on instagram yeah but it's a thrill to see what um see how they end up from a bush here in Narracourt and how they end up on a plate in sydney it's a, it's a work of art Liz Crowley from Ananda Organic. One such restaurant where the capers end up is the famous Iceberg's dining room and bar right on the coast in Bondi. Culinary director Alex Pritchard says he wasn't always a fan of using capers in his dishes, but that all changed once he understood the differences between Australian and imported products. So look, I originally kind of didn't love capers. I enjoyed them as a as a thing in general, but I didn't find them I didn't find them all that impressive. Traditionally in Australia, we get you know capers that have been imported from Italy or Spain. They've needed to then you know kind of sit on a boat for six to twelve months to get here. They've needed to be you know treated very harshly to be able to survive those conditions. So when I first tried Liz's capers from Ananda, I I found them pretty incredible. They're unlike anything I'd ever eaten before. Right. So taste-wise, what is the difference then between a, a fresh caper grown in Australia and one that has been imported? The difference between Liz's capers and say an imported one. I thing is they're very very clean and neutral so they, they don't have a huge amount of brine in them they don't have any of these gutsy flavors they don't need too much salt or vinegar to preserve them so you're actually getting a lot of the natural caper flavor coming through they're quite delicate so usually say something like a, a crudo with a delicate fish like coral trout i usually wouldn't put say an imported caper on the top of them because they're so intense and overpowering Whereas Liz's ones, if you put them on there, it's a subtle, refreshing flavour with a lot of depth and, and fragrance to it that goes really, really well with, with other delicate flavours without overpowering them. And I know you do buy Liz's capers now, but can sourcing capers for chefs in Australia, will fresh capers be a difficult task? 
Traditionally, they just hadn't existed. Like it, it, the only capers we as chefs used to get were were imported. It's only in the last few years that Liz and one or two other caper growers in Australia have, have kind of come on board. And the other thing that I think is great they're doing is their caper leaves as well, which are phenomenal. Usually, to get caper leaves in Australia from overseas, they would come in, you know, really, really intensely oiled or kind of brined, so the the leaves would almost be breaking down, or they'd even be too chewy to kind of eat. Whereas Liz's caper leaves are so so soft and delicate and such a beautiful balance of the brine that you kind of you can use them on just about everything, and they don't they don't overpower them at all. Yeah, is the flavour profile for the leaves very different to the capers themselves? It's quite a similar flavour profile between the leaves and the capers. I suppose I would say that the leaves are probably just a little bit more of a quicker flavour, if that makes sense. Like the the capers, you kind of bite into one and it continues to um, continues to develop on your palate and then kind of goes away over time. Whereas a whereas a leaf, you kind of bite through it and you get this huge burst of, of acid and fragrance, and then it, it, it's gone almost as quickly as it came. Uh, consumers at, at your restaurant a bit surprised at, at the taste of the capers? Have they had fresh capers often? Yeah, so a lot of customers have never really had capers like this before. So generally when they do have them, they are they are surprised. And we do get a lot of people asking, you know, where, where are they from? Where can I get them? What have you done to them is probably the most frequently asked one. And when we, when we kind of explain, look, we actually haven't done anything to them. They're just that good to begin with. People are really, really shocked. As the culinary director at Iceberg's Dining Room and Bar, Alex Pritchard, ending that story from Elsie Adamo and Eliza Berlage. I had no idea. It took so much effort to uh, harvest those little delicious capers. If you want to read more about that, there's a great online story you can read right now on this website. It's abc.net.au forward slash rural. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. You're with Selena Green today. Have you ever spotted something growing out in the wild and thought... That doesn't belong here. Well, not all invasive species and weeds are obvious. Some of them are quite beautiful, in fact, and have likely escaped from nearby gardens into the native landscape. But they can pose a huge risk to biodiversity and agriculture as well. A recent discovery in the coastal dunes of North Beach, Wallaroo, has caused some serious concern that's prompted the local landscape board into immediate action. It's a discovery of a rather pretty little plant called the Cape Marigold. Northern and York Landscape Board Officer Nick Nichols explained what it is, why they don't want it there. Cape Marigold is a plant from um, southern Africa. It looks similar to other African daisy species that you might see in the um, nursery trade a bit, but um, it's an annual where most of the other ones live for a few years. And um, it's quite an attractive plant, which is probably why somebody's maybe taken it to their garden to grow and it's escaped out into the dunes in Wallaroo. Okay, so that's where you found it, in in the dunes there? Yeah, between um, the marina and the main town of North Beach. How would it have got there? Do you have any idea how it's ended up in the dunes? No, there's a lot of different ways that it could have. It could have, you know, come in by from a car, a nearby garden, which is could be a thing, or a boat, or it could be a lot of different things. Why is it a concern? It's something that we understand has prompted a, a pretty quick response. Uh, obviously, it's a, a big concern to have found it where you did. Yeah, so we were um, doing some box thorn work um, nearby, and we were going to head up into North Beach. And um, as we were driving along the beach there, we did notice that there was a patch of white flowers, which is a bit unusual. So we had a closer look and it was, yeah, it it did look like a a different species of African daisy, but it just looked a little bit different. So 
um, I thought it might be worth sending into the herbarium. And um, there was a lot of them. There was thousands within this small patch of about 20 square metres. So obviously looked a bit concerning. And as I said, this is a particularly invasive species, this one. Once it gets going, it's, uh, what, it, it takes off pretty quick? Yeah, it appears to be. Um, it's not really a species that's been found much. Um, it looks like in South Australia. It's never been found in our region. It's popped up in Adelaide before, and the Adelaide guys have given it a score of six out of nine, which is red alert species. Yeah, by the looks of how it's taken off just in this patch at Wallaroo, then, um, yeah, definitely a concern. And what, what is the concern and what are the implications if it's just left to its own devices? What kind of damage could it do? It pushes out other native species. Um, our dune systems are really sensitive to invasive uh, species, things like gazanias, box thorns, you know, cactuses from people's gardens get out and it just displaces our native things and puts a lot of pressure on you know, our native animals and changes our dune shapes and messes up a lot of things really. So what will the response be in terms of eradicating it from this location? This season we have pulled out all plants, left them in place, and this area will be monitored yearly. Um, We got it before it set viable seed. There might have been a few they got through, but, yeah, this site will be monitored each year and we'll we'll look around the area and see if we can find a source. Um, It's a bit hard to completely eradicate something if you don't know where it came from. Yeah, hopefully it's a one-off. Absolutely. And I guess this is a good timely reminder for people that if they are planting things in their garden um, or carrying things around that aren't native species, that um, it it can be quite easy for them to get in somewhere where they're definitely not wanted and then get them out. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the species growing on our southern coastlines in Australia, they're just really iconic for the area. And yeah, I don't know why you'd want to grow anything else other than our native species but um <laughs> so you can you can look on the northern in your landscape board page for our coastal gardens a planting guide it gives like alternatives to some common garden plants that people might be growing it also tells you little facts like this one attracts birds or bees really handy little publication we have on our website Nick Nichols there, who is a officer with the Northern and York Landscape Board. Cape Marigold is a pretty little flower, but definitely don't want it there. So speaking of plants ending up where they don't belong, do you buy your plants or seeds online or at a garden centre? Buying online does have some advantages, like the range or having your plants delivered right to your door. But buyer beware because you might be breaking the law without even knowing it. Certain plants are prohibited in Australia because they're harmful to our environment and agriculture industries. Recent research has found that many of them being sold via online platforms to gardeners across the country. Jacob Ma is a PhD candidate from the University of Adelaide, and he says it is legal to purchase plants online in South Australia. Yes, it certainly is. The only thing is, is that there are a couple of plants in South Australia which are invasive and they're declared weeds so they're plants that you can't buy or sell online uh, or even offline in South Australia. So who controls what is able to be sold online or offline? You know is there monitoring or regulations across the internet of plant sales? So across the internet it's a bit tricky it's sort of more based on uh, where you live and where that transaction actually occurs 
So if you're living in South Australia, that is governed by the Environment Department or PERSA. They are the ones who would be following up anything where somebody might be selling something they shouldn't in terms of plants. And as a part of your PhD, you've done a bit of a test looking at the plants that are available online to see if any of them are invasive? Yeah, so uh, what we did is we took uh, plants that are declared across Australia. We took a list of those and we tried to search the internet to see if we could find them being sold. And um, turns out we did. We found them being sold on some public marketplaces. So, yeah, we're finding that people were selling some of these plants that they shouldn't. Did the people know that they were selling an invasive species or were you able to distinguish that? Yeah, so we weren't able to directly sort of um, contact people to get their um, idea of whether or not they knew what it was. But from based on some of the evidence that we saw a lot of generic names being used for these plants, we weren't sure that people were exactly aware of the plant or what kind of plant it was that they were selling. So we could kind of infer from that that people don't have a good knowledge about what these plants are and therefore probably don't know that they're invasive. Wow. And so what are some of the common ones that you were seeing? Yeah, so some of the common ones we see are prickly pear cacti um, as well as some of the aquatic weeds. So things like water hyacinth, frogbit, salvinia. So, And also for South Australia more specifically, Things like the arum lily and gazanias are actually declared in South Australia. So we saw some of those being sold online, which is um, not, not a great thing to be doing. And what were they being sold as online? You know, Were they actually being called these invasive species the correct names or were they given the wrong name, the misleading title? So sometimes we would just see these arum lilies just be called a lily and think some of those invasive pond plants, we would see people just referring to them as pond plants. Um, or aquarium plants um, and not knowing exactly what they were called or calling them by different names, calling something uh, duckweed when it was actually salvinia. So what is the problem here? Is it, you know, internet sale regulation or is it just general awareness and education? I think it's a bit of both. I definitely think that these platforms need to do a bit more of uh, self-regulation. They need to take the time to make sure that what's being sold on their website is actually legal. Um, But then, yeah, I think the other part is just some awareness. It's just good for people to know that there are plants that they can't keep or sell in their state and to have a think about the plants that they'd like to have around them and and try and focus on some of those more safer alternatives and, and, uh, you know, local natives to your area. Jacob, as as an ecologist, I imagine it's quite a concern to see these invasive species being sold online and especially when you see that that sale is successful and that species is then, you know, moved around, spread, garden in other areas. What kind of an impact would this have? Some of these species um, can have some really damaging effects on our native bushland and they can also be um, some real problems for our agriculture as well. But sometimes we'll see these plants taking over Um, wetlands and and rivers. They can also invade native bushland and smother our native plants. And sometimes some of these plants can actually uh, make for much more intense and severe fire conditions. So yeah, there's quite a few things there that uh, we really don't want to be encouraging, I guess, in the environment. So what would you recommend people do if they are looking to go online and, and buy plants? So in South Australia, you can jump on the PERSA website and you can check out what plants Um, You shouldn't buy or keep it in South Australia. And then I would encourage people to check out some websites like 
the Gardening Responsibly website. That's got some good recommendations for all kinds of ornamental plants that you can keep. And then I would always encourage people to pick local natives to their area because they're the ones that are going to provide the, the best benefits to the ecosystem around you. That's Jacob Ma there. He's a PhD candidate from the University of Adelaide and spe- he was speaking with Beck Chave. Uh, on the text line, this text has popped up. It says, what about gazania all over the country now and councils seem to completely ignore it. Um, you know, Jacob did mention Gazania there being a bit of an issue and um, well, while that interview was playing I did hop on a few online gardening websites and yeah, they're quite easy. You can get them quite cheaply right now and delivered straight to your door but no mention on any of those websites about perhaps where you or where you shouldn't be planting those. Uh, Helen on the text line asks, how do I get rid of frogbeard? I had no idea it was a problem. Uh, well, perhaps uh, on that Persa website, Helen, or maybe a good place to start would be to contact your local uh, landscape board and I'm sure they'd be very help, happy to uh, perhaps talk you through how you might be able to rid yourself of uh, a species that you don't want in your garden. It is just going on seven minutes to one. You're with Selena Green on the Country Hour today. Were you someone who struggled to access childcare locally? Advocates say childcare shortages in regional Australia are crippling essential services like health and exacerbating agriculture labour shortages. Grain Growers Major Projects General Manager Caitlin Leonard says childcare is an issue that members have raised over and over again and it's prompted the organisation to hold a series of roundtables to try and find some solutions. Look, it's becoming an enormous challenge uh, for rural and remote communities. We're seeing it in, in regional centres as well. So, um, you know, a lot of agriculture happens around regional centres, but the, the pr- problem becomes even more stark as you step into those rural and remote areas. It's a challenge of having access to the staff, the centres that exist in some of these towns, but, you know, the problem's so much bigger than that. It's about having access to accommodation for those staff to work in. It's about having the venues in smaller rural and remote areas that are suitable for um, early education and care facilities. It's about having access to the information of what's going to work really well for your community. So there are a a, a number of different types of models of early education and care, everything from in-venue care, family daycare, you know, your traditional daycare centres. But communities are really struggling to access both the staff, the funding and the infrastructure in order to establish them in rural and remote communities. And so what kind of impact is that having on communities and and particularly on agricultural operations? It comes down to a workforce issue. We've got a lot of people that exist within the ag sector who are engaged in the sector, educated in the sector and, and really keen to be involved, but they're struggling to get back to work because they can't access adequate childcare for their kids. So, you know, we, we hear a lot of stories about the workforce problem that exists within agriculture and Adequate childcare is a really key tool in unlocking workforce potential for ag for the ag sector. This might not be an area that people would expect grain growers as an organisation to be involved in. What's driving your involvement in, in the childcare issue? Yeah, I certainly had a few um, confused sounding people on the uh, on the end of the phone line when I started reaching out, particularly to the early childhood um, education sector and, and even academics in the space. I was sort of like, why are grain growers giving me a call? But the link is, is really that workforce one. Um, we run a, a national policy survey each year and for a number of years, those workforce concerns have been right in, those, in the top three primary, primary issues for growers. And we wanted to sort of take a look at the problem and find a niche way of attacking that problem. 
and childcare just became a, a you know, access to childcare became a glaring problem in people getting back to work. So it's a, it's a really natural natural fit when you when you delve into it. Have you yourself had trouble accessing childcare? <laughs> Unfortunately, yes, I've had I've had a terrible terrible battle with it. I'm uh, I'm based in Griffith in New South Wales, and and Griffith's a decent sized town. It's got a number of um, childcare facilities. There are family daycare and things like that. But the the waiting list to get into the daycare facilities are enormous. Um, I can't speak to all of them, but I know one of them that there's 70 families sort of in front of in front of someone like me on the list waiting to get in. And then it's a matter of also you might get in for X amount of days, but having the days that suit what you'd like to work and what suit your working environment is a further challenge. Family daycares are at capacity, uh, so we ended up going down the route of finding a private nanny. But of course, because that's sort of private, there's no access to the childcare subsidy and things like that. So the financial burden is greater because there's not that access to government support. And if you can't afford to engage a private nanny and if you don't have perhaps family who's able to support you, what does that mean for families? Does it mean ultimately that women, for the most part, are are having to um, stay at home and they're not able to go out and work? Yeah, look, it it is something that's probably more felt by women. Both parties or both parents often play a role in childcare, but it does tend to be a bit of a gendered issue. And women are faced with the decision of I absolutely can't get back to work. That has huge impacts on a family from a financial perspective. It also has um, impacts on a family from you know, a, a woman's career progression and things like that when you have to step out of the workforce for X amount of years. Like that can, that can present a significant barrier. It has blow-on implications to your super fund when it comes to retirement age while you're stepping out of the workforce. There's no contributions to super. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a real challenge and, and it's a shame that it's happening because a lot of women would love to get back to work. The problem and the challenge of, of sort of access to childcare in the bush is, is a very big one with complicated issues that have to do with the, the, the dire need for funding reform to ensure that there's dedicated funding for rural and remote areas. Yeah, and so Harvest is kicking off. Do you think this childcare issue is going to impact how Harvest goes in some communities? I can only imagine that it will. One of the greater problems of um, that childcare in country areas is that it requires a greater degree of flexibility than what's experienced in metro areas because we have greater peak periods on farm where we're busy we bring additional staff onto farm for for harvest and things like that so it absolutely will impact the ability for people to bring staff in but also for you know you really need to mobilize everyone on farm come harvest time Um, and that's a challenge when you've got you know a lot of uh, kids running around it's a safety concern because obviously primarily you need to keep the kids safe, but everyone's busy. So you really want to have access to your entire workforce at a time, a time like harvest. That's Caitlin Leonard from Grain Growers speaking to Fiona Broom. Time to say hello to Sonia Feldov. Hi, Sonia. Hello, Selena. Now, if you're someone who loves the birds that visit your area, and plenty of you do, I know that. There are plenty of bird lovers out there. Maybe it's time to get to know them a little better. Bird expert um, Professor Daryl Jones will be joining me today. He's written numerous books and he's 
latest involves getting to know the birds in your neighbourhood, a field uh, guide. Now, this is because, of course, birds' behaviour changes when they're in an urban environment. So if you want to have some tips on how to how to love and deal with those birds around you, uh, Daryl is your man. Plus, of course, I think there are a lot of people around with phones disquietingly quiet uh, mm. today. You'll, we'll make sure you get the latest on the Optus uh, out outage as well. Thanks, Sonia. Sonia Feldhoff, she'll be on your radio this afternoon with those great stories and much, much more. Thanks so much for your company today. It is time for the news. It's one o'clock. Lend us your ears. Download the ABC Listen app and find all our audio in one handy place. Tap on the ABC radio icon and go to our station page. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.